Thanks be to God. Good morning, Redemption. Uh, you see the mustache now and you get the Super Mario joke. Um, but that's fine. Jim thinks that's a diss, but I'm a 90s kid, so being compared to Super Mario is a high honor. I'll take it. Uh, the CrossFit part is like, that's the joke. I couldn't survive a workout of the day to save my life. <clears throat> we are, uh, church, going to be continuing our sermon series in Revelation. My name's Jake. I'm one of your pastors. One of our things is we try to take God seriously, but not ourselves, so we joke with each other. But we're going to jump into Revelation, and you guys already heard the intensity of that language, and you're probably like, what's Jake going to do, this Jezebel thing? Well, cue that we should probably pray before we open the Word of God, so let's do it. Heavenly Father, um, yeah, I just thank you that we get to come and sit here in this church, laugh and have joy with one another and hear your word. And we welcome and desire your presence, Jesus. And this word speaks and your scripture cuts to the heart like a sharp two-edged sword. And so I just ask that you'd give us all ears to hear what your spirit says to your churches that you'd prepare at each of our hearts even right now. And I ask for just my own sake to Jesus, just to Give me the supernatural wisdom and presence and anointing to be able to make much of you, Jesus. So at the end of the day, everyone gets to see you come clothed in scripture. Amen. So the question of the morning <clears throat> is, would you ever cheat on the person that you love the most? So it's Friday night, and Timothy is about to cheat on the person that he loves the most. If you don't know Timothy, uh, Timothy is a bronze worker in ancient Thyatira, the church that we get this letter to. And it starts with an invitation to a work social event, Friday night, end of the week, and they go, hey, Timothy, let's go out to do a work social. And Timothy's excited because as a young bronze worker specialist, he has gotten a good job in the hotbed city for the trade guilds. I mean, Thyatira, think more like Silicon Valley. And him having a lucrative business that he got plugged into, whatever business you think highly of, but think of like a giant like Google or Apple. And so Timothy has been invited to this work culture event at the end of the week, which would happen so often. And so he tells his friends, yeah, I would love to come. Where is it? But he already knows where it is because everyone in ancient Thyatira knows where all work culture events happen. They happen in the temple. Pick your temple. It doesn't really matter. Every single work trade guild in the ancient city of Thyatira had a sponsored patron deity, god or goddess, that was in charge of bronze working or linen making and textiles or whatever job that you want. And that was a hotbed for all those trades guilds. And so he knows already it's at the temple. And so Timothy shows up to the temple and he sees all of his coworkers there laughing and excited for the end of the week festivities. And so they invite Timothy in and though a little bit uncomfortable because he's stepping into now the temple of Apollo, he gets some laughs in with his coworkers and continues to walk in. And 
you would think as he walks by some of the men and the women that are there who are cult prostitutes, that that would be the place where Timothy is going to cheat on the person he loves the most. But he doesn't. He keeps walking with all of his coworkers. He gets to the back area of the temple, and there are all of his coworkers in the bronze guild there laughing and drinking wine. And Timothy thinks, you know what? I'm a follower of Jesus. Jesus drank wine whatever. So he has a glass of wine and he begins to lighten up a little bit and he laughs with his coworkers and he's having a good time. And it's actually in this space where he's going to cheat on the person that he loves the most. At first, he doesn't necessarily think about it, but then his boss comes out and he sees all the servants come by and they load up the table with the full spread of the finest meal that you could have thinking of. Again, it's a work event. So everyone's celebrating and they're about to start eating. But before they eat, what happens is Timothy's boss begins to get up and give a pseudo type prayer religious rite in honor of Apollo, the god of the bronze workers. And he blesses the meat that was there. And he tells everybody there, this meat was given in offering of the God Apollo. Thanks be to God of the God Apollo for taking care of this field of work, bronze working. And everyone's there and they all start digging in and Timothy sits down and his plate at first seems untouched. And then he notices that at one point his boss stops and looks at him and goes, Timothy, aren't you going to eat? And then everyone turns and looks at him. What is Timothy going to do? So Timothy picks up his fork and he cheats on the person that he loves the most, Jesus, with the God Apollo. Now you, you might hear that story and you're like, geez, man, Timothy, just tell him you're vegan. <laughs> but the, you know, imagining this event kind of brings to mind just the kind of the question, would you ever cheat on Jesus? And, and, you know, if you're hearing this story, you're like, there's no way. You might be thinking, Jake, I don't even know who Apollo is, much less I haven't been doing a temple anywhere. I can't even think of a comparable thing where I would go willingly into another religious temple and worship another god at the same time. No, I would not cheat. But honestly, does anyone ever wake up in the morning and go, today's the day I decide to cheat on the person I love the most? So I think it might actually be worth asking us again how could someone cheat? It might seem ridiculous to us, the very idea of blatantly worshiping other gods when you're a follower of Jesus, but this was a common problem for the first church early days. That's why Paul spoke a lot into eating food sacrificed to idols and kind of the tension between like freedom and what to do. It's not just, you know, it's not just that Timothy is like wrestling over food preferences here either. I mean, you can't necessarily stop in the middle of the work culture event and go, no thanks, I'm vegan, I brought my own Beyond Burger. He could lose his job. Or if he's not associated with another trade guild, how is he going to get work? How's he going to take care of his family? And so what, what did the church back then do? What did they do? Well, actually, some of them said no. Some of them awkwardly would have stood up and said, I'm sorry, I follow only Jesus, and walked out and been completely cut off with the guild. 
Some Christians refused to go near the temples even at all and would have resulted in the ostracization they would have experienced from friends and family and the outer culture. And so when Jesus speaks to the church in Thyatira, he begins in verse 19, he says, I know your works, your love, and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works have exceeded the first. There's some within the church who have been faithful to Jesus. There's some who are compromised with idols, and then there's a whole spectrum in between, and there's nothing new because that's what happens in the church from then all the way to today. And so Jesus is gonna speak to that church. Again, you might be thinking, what's the big deal? Just eat the food, it's just a steak those gods aren't even real anyways. In fact, doesn't Paul say something like that? But, you know, it's not even necessarily a compromise. And, and honestly, some Christians in Thyatira were saying exactly that. Just eat the food. It's not that big a deal. I mean, go to the temple. Timothy's not really cheating. He's still a Christian. It doesn't mean anything to him to eat the meat just because he eats it, right? But what happens if Timothy, who's been growing up in Thyatira his whole life, his whole family had been worshiping Apollo, even if he became a Christian, what do you think it feels like for him to go back into that temple? What if even as much as he wants to follow Jesus, he goes back in and his heart begins to drift, as Warren talked about last week? It's not cheating. It's not an affair. Well, the question in any kind of circumstance like that is ask the person you're supposed to be faithful or not whether it's okay. And so what does Jesus say when you ask the question, who are they cheating with? Verse 20, Jesus says, I have this against you, church that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent from her sexual immorality. Okay, wait, this is weird enough already, Jake. Um, So is there someone literally named Jezebel who is walking around having sex with people in the church and then offering plates filled with steaks that are labeled Apollo on them all the time? Um, Probably not. More likely, what you see going on here is that there's a woman in the church who called herself a prophet. Whether she's an official leader or not, we don't know. But she was teaching that compromising with idols, drifting slowly, I mean, it's not really that big a deal. Jesus' blood covers you. Those gods aren't even real. Don't worry about it. Be in the world, but not of the world. But you got to be in the world, right? Go to the temple. Eat the food. And so some of the Christians were kind of taking this on. I mean, why wouldn't you? Because how much easier than losing your whole livelihood, losing your whole job, everyone within the culture calling you a freak or an atheist, And so Jesus speaks. If you ask him whether or not it's cheating, he says that his problem with the church in Thyatira is that they tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, if the only thing you've heard about the woman Jezebel before this is that that's the name that uh, Bobby Boucher's mom calls the girl in Waterboy for 
being promiscuous, or maybe you've got some background in church culture where someone has said something weird like, that person's got the spirit of Jezebel, and you're like, I don't know what that is, but if I'm a girl, it's bad to be called a Jezebel. That's all really I knew growing up. I mean, I didn't have any, like, why would you call someone a Jezebel? I mean, but for them, right, they don't have the same context. Think about it. Their whole Bible is the Old Testament, Maybe they got some like gospel letters and things loosely like thrown around, but it's not all finished yet, the Bible. So what they got is the Old Testament. So when they hear Jezebel, bam, their imagination goes immediately back to First and Second Kings. This dramatic unfolding story where God's people compromised with the idols of Baal. And who led them? Jezebel, the queen of Israel. And Jezebel wasn't like, hey, leave Yahweh, leave our, no, 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 no. Just add Baal worship in. She was advocating for an an open relationship with God. Just, you know, we're not going to abandon God. Just bring in the Asherahs and the cult fertility worship. And so she led Israel. And so when the Thyatirans like Timothy hear that Jesus has a problem with Jezebel, he goes back immediately into the Old Testament. And this is the dominant metaphor that God uses throughout the Old Testament when it comes to when God's people start to worship and creep towards idols, he calls it cheating on them. In fact, that's why the whole book of Hosea has that, has that metaphor And when he tells, you know, the people that he's going to punish them for their feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings and adorned herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, idols, other gods, are other lovers. And so Jesus says, you're cheating on me, church. So is this not about sex? Like, are we talking about compromise with idols and eating food to other idols? Are we talking about, or are we talking about sexual immorality? Yes. Often those go hand in hand together. And no doubt these Christians are going to the temple of Apollo and guess where you find prostitutes back then? It's double dangerous here. And yet the dominant picture here is not so much about sex but sex is a metaphor for unfaithfulness and idol worship. The dominant metaphor that God gave in the Old Testament for Jezebel and Thyatira is you are cheating on me. You're meant to be faithful to me and me only. And so who were they cheating on? They were cheating on Jesus and they were cheating on him with Apollo and Aphrodite, with Artemis and Zeus the divine emperor of Rome. And this woman in the church, just like Jezebel, was leading them in it. And so Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. Who are we cheating on Jesus with? You might be thinking, whoa, Jake, that's pretty strong language. I am not cheating on Jesus with anyone. I've never even, again, seen a temple. I would never be caught dead going into one, much less eating food so obviously offered to another God. But the problem with idolatry back then, just as it is today, is it's so ingrained in culture, it's invisible. 
We look at it now from the outside perspective and go, that's ridiculous and so obviously idolatry. But for them, it was so ingrained into life. I mean, he's just go- Timothy's just going to a work meeting. It is so entwined with the day-to-day that it's impossible to recognize. And so if we're going to ask the question, who are we cheating on Jesus with? We need some help to identify the idols within our own lives. Chris Wright has a really good book. It's, it's called Here Are Your Gods, and it's focused at Western culture and the idolatry today. And he gives a criteria. How do you recognize an, a god? As humans, we make gods out of things we desire, things we fear, things we trust, things we need. That's the tough thing about these is they're all things that God made that we turn into worship. But the one thing here, you, you can just remember this, the one thing to figure out whether or not it's an idol, here's, it, here's what it is. Every idol, whether it's in the ancient world or today, demands sacrifice. And so, you know, I, I know you might hear that and initially be like, sacrifice? I mean, that, that is weird. I mean, that's why I have a hard time, Jake, when I think about these ancient practices and I think about them going to temple and like they're killing animals on altars. I mean, it's so archaic. It's so barbaric and so far away. I can't even wrap my head around. I mean, that's what exactly what I've always thought about the Bible and how it talks about idols and idol worship until I went to China. And when I was there, we met a group of Christians who were pastoring in the far reaches of the western part of China, and they were pastoring in a city that was 50% Muslim, and it was like 49% Buddhist, and a tiny fraction of other things, and a handful of Christians. And so one day they said, hey, we would love to give you kind of like a picture of what our culture looks like, what it looks like to be ministering here. We're going to take you to a Tibetan Buddhist temple. And we're like, all right, sounds great. And honestly, I had no confliction going there because I'm like, these things aren't real. It's just like a bunch of silly statues. And so we go in. And as we're going in, I'm like, wow, this is like literally like the picturesque, Instagrammable, like travel-like thing. I mean, there's like beautiful art everywhere and prayer flags everywhere. And we go in and then we go into the section of the temple where there is a Buddha specifically for money. And this thing is covered in gold. It's massive. And lines out the door of people who come in and what little change of money they have, they throw it on to this money Buddha. And the idea is that if you give this money Buddha your own bits of your money or time or effort, then this money Buddha will bless you with fortune and favor. And of course, I'm in there and I'm like, this is idolatry. This makes me uncomfortable. And when we walk outside, it gets even more grotesque because there are these monks and these devotees and there are old men and women and even young orphaned kids who have scraped knees and elbows because they've been spending miles of bowing down, getting up, bowing down, getting up. And I watch this and it's like twisting my guts because I'm like, here are these humans being destroyed literally by an idol. And then we, we go, we, we leave and we go to dinner with uh, Michelle 
and who's the Chinese national is leading us around and interpreting for us. And we're just kind of processing what we've been going through, talking about how like horrifying it was for us to see. Mind you, that's their context. They see it all the time. And so I begin to talk about to her just like how hard it was to see that and how I just can't even bend my mind around how people would bow down to such a worthless and aimless idol. And you know what Michelle said? She said, you think that's crazy. What's crazy to me is the things that I've seen Americans do to bow down to the dollar bill. What's crazy to me is the excessive worship of the individual that everything else gets thrown out the window. Some of you are in the bed of another God right now. Maybe you hear these stories initially and of the ancient gods and idols and you say, Jake, I would never be caught in the temple of Venus worshiping the goddess of beauty, but every day you bow down to the almighty mirror because she promises that if you pay her enough money, enough sweat, enough skin, even giving away your own body, then you'll find life at her altar. Maybe you think I'd never be caught dead as an ancient Christian making sacrifices on an altar to the gods like the god Pluto, the god of wealth. And yet, dads, how many times have you put your sons and your daughters and your wives on the altar of the almighty dollar bill? How many hours of family time have you sacrificed because you promised if this God promised if you give away your life, you'll find security, significance, happiness? It might seem absurd to bow down to a statue, but let's just be honest for a second and compare how many hours have we spent on our knees in prayer? Now put that up against how many hours we've spent on our butts on the couch, bowing down to the metal and glass gods of entertainment and the pillows of comfort. Let's be careful to judge those Thyatirans for eating food sacrificed to the divine Caesar of Rome, a political god, when we can all remember what happened in 2020 and how high the bodies were stacked on the altars of the twin gods of the donkey and the elephant of America. Maybe we should ask again, are we cheating on Jesus? And who are we cheating on him with? The question to ask when someone is caught cheating is how's the person going to respond who I cheated on? If we today go, man, I, maybe I have been caught, and we look at the face of Jesus, the next question is how is he going to respond? And this is where some of the most vivid imagery of Revelation comes in. I need you to hold on with me because we're going to follow this through, okay? How does Jesus respond to his people cheating on him. Verse 22 says, Behold, to Jezebel, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the children will know that I am he who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So what happened in the Old Testament to Jezebel? Jezebel. Got warned a lot, 
Abraham, her husband got warned a lot. And eventually what happened is God decided to make a new king who came in, killed the old king, marched into the territory of Jezebel. And then when Jezebel continued to threaten these new prophets and kings, the new king said, throw her down. And she was thrown out of a building and died. And then what happened to all of the prophets and priests of Baal who were gathering together and were going like, we're not going to change this. We're just going to keep the open relationship. This new king, Jehu, took all of them together and said, sounds great. Let's have a party for Baal. And everybody who showed up to the party, he killed. So God refused to have an open relationship with Baal. And Jesus will not share his church with Apollo or Aphrodite or Zeus or Caesar or any other God that we can think of today. The first response that Jesus has to cheating is a very harsh warning. Unless she and all who follow her repent, she'll be thrown into her sickness like God threw Jezebel from a window. Harsh, right? It's intense language. But when you think about it, is it inappropriate? Let's pretend for a second. God forbid it came out that I was cheating on my wife, Lexi. And Lexi comes to me and she tells me that she found out, right? And she says, come back to me run from the affair, come back to our marriage, be faithful to me. And I say, okay, sounds great. But what happens if I don't? And I keep having affair after affair. What happens then is at some point, my wife Lexi is going to speak to me and say, babe, I was reminded in the first service, Lexi was like, I would not say babe to you. (laughs) She's like, I'd be like, and then I would speak. So just gotta, that's what Lexi said she would do. So she would say, babe, if you keep going down this path, our relationship will die. How could it not? If you keep going down this path, Jake, she would say, you are going to put to death everything we have worked for. You are going to kill everything that is beautiful within our relationship. You are walking towards the death and end of our relationship, every beautiful and living and wonderful thing that would come from it. Come back. But if you don't, it's going to end in death. None of us hear that and go, that's unreasonable, Lexi. We all hear that and we go, yeah. Jesus speaks in the same way because he's not going to let his church keep cheating on him. He's not going to continue. So what do you do? What would a Timothy do hearing this, having his imagination reshaped by the vision of Revelation? You got to think, as harsh as it is, would Jesus ever talk to the church if he didn't want her to come back? Isn't the vision of how intense it is because he loves his church so much? 
We're already told in here that they've been warned a handful of times that it's, it's not like this is a surprise for them, that something has gone on ahead of time. This is the final conversation from Jesus where he is so desperate for his church that he's screaming at them, you're gonna kill our relationship. And if you keep going to these idols, it's gonna be the death of everything. And so what do we do? Some of us in here today are gonna hear that. And we're going to go, man, I have been in the bed of another. What do you do? You come back to Jesus. Some of us today are going to hear that and go, okay, I haven't committed an affair on Jesus, but have I had an emotional affair? Has the, another idol captured my attention or my eyes? Maybe I'm not cheating on Jesus, but am I flirting with someone? Is there something within my culture that has promised me life and joy that I start to look at and go, man, that looks really good, and my eyes begin to turn away from Jesus? What do you do? Jesus makes so clear with the harsh warning, if you walk down this path, it will mean death. Why? Because the difference between Lexi and Jesus is Lexi doesn't sustain the air in my lungs. If I walk away from her, I can still live. But what if you walk away from the God who made you? What other result is there than death? And so Jesus speaks harshly because he wants his church to come back. He loves them and he will not let them go to another idol and sleep with another God without him shouting at his bride, I will not share you and I want you for myself. Jesus, in the end, will not share his bride. He's not going to share his people with gods like Apollo, and he will not share his church today with any other idols as well. But Jake, that feels like I have to say no to so much, right? Because that's the thing that's so tough about idols. All of them are initially, they're things that God made, and I don't just want to let Satan own everything. In, in the, we say all of life is all for Jesus, right? And so how am I going to actually say no to all these things without just feeling like the enemy wins? I mean, it just feels like I have to give up so much in life. I have to say no to so many things in life. And that just sounds depressing. Kind of is. Or are you going to have to say no to many things to say yes to Jesus? Yes, you will. If you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to say no to a lot. Friendships might literally be impossible because of saying yes to Jesus. You might have to watch them fade into nothing and vanish because your commitment to Jesus and refusal to get entangled with idols is going to get in the way of so much. You might have to say literally no to career growth because you cannot possibly actually move forward and up the ladder in this world without compromising to other idols and gods. You might have to say no to a lot of dreams or visions that you had had within life to be able to say yes to Jesus. But as depressing as it sounds, isn't that true of so many beautiful things? If I say yes to my wife, Lexi, don't I have to say no to every other woman in the world? 
If I'm going to have deep, rooted friendships, don't I have to say no to a lot of people and begin to allow my life to be shaped by a collect few? If I'm going to be really good at any vocation or art or craft, isn't there some point in life where I have to say, I can't do everything, I'm just going to do this? And the thing that's so tough about being an American Christian is that our culture has elevated to the point of God, both freedom, choice, and comfort, which leaves us in this point of paralyzation where we are so anemic and unexercised in saying no to anything we think all options is better, to the point where you sit down to watch a TV show, you don't even know how to say no to the other TV shows. You can't even pick anything to watch. You're like, oh my gosh, this is overwhelming. I don't know how to say no to all these things. We're so ill-equipped within our culture in the good of saying no. As an American, that's disgusting, saying no or limiting yourself in anything. But think about how much beauty comes when you say no to all things to say yes to one. And so, yes, we must say no to so much to say yes to Jesus. Jesus wants our full attention. He's not going to share the house with the other idols that we want to bring in. He's not going to stand at the altar with his church and allow his bride to bring in a couple other lovers with him. He is going to say, you can come to me, but you cannot bring any other idols. You must say no to them. Jesus hates idols. Is it just because God just has a problem with like plurality and like can't he be more free and relaxed on these rules? I mean, why is he so vicious with idols within the Old Testament and in the New Testament? I mean, there's a vision in here in this letter to fire. I mean, it's intense, right? Like that is intense language. We're going to keep going in Revelation. It's not going to get less intense. I'm just going to warn you guys. And so we actually have to be able to reconcile. Here is this Jesus who is so loving, so serving, so gentle that he lays down his life for his enemies. How do I reconcile this to that? By asking a question, why does Jesus hate idols so much in the first place? Because idols are nothing more than abusive lovers. An idol is nothing more than a seductive and abusive lover that says with all kinds of promises, I will give you X, Y, Z if you only sacrifice of yourself these things for me. And every time an idol leads you to the point where you wake up in the bed and you look around and you realize I'm a slave or I've given up so much or this has become to hurt me, every single idol Every sacrifice you make, it takes from you. It makes you sacrifice your humanity. You want to know what the goal of an idol is? To make you not human anymore. It wants to make you like itself. It wants to make you so that you are nothing but a servant to that very thing and you have no longer any other idea. How does, it, how does it get you there? By making you sacrifice at first little things and then bigger things and then bigger things until all you have is the idol of control because you've sacrificed everything because it promised you peace. And it abused you the whole way there. Why does Jesus hate idols? Because they've been abusing our world from the beginning. Idols are liars and they're backed by demons. 
And so Jesus hates them. And there's a point within God's creation where Jesus draws a line and he goes, no more. I will not let idols rule any longer. Jesus hates idols. And that's actually good news. Isn't it? It's actually good news that Jesus is so unrelenting, unflinching with these idols. It is good news because what Jesus promises in the future world is that Jesus is going to bring an end to all cheating. He promises to his church, he says in verse 26, the one who conquers, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I'll give authority over the nations. And when then he will rule them with the rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star to combat the temptation that idols use to seduce us. Jesus gives a promise to his church. There's coming a day where there will no longer be idols anywhere. He quotes a part of Psalm 2 where it is spoken that God gives all authority to Jesus over the nations. Why is that such good news? Because our world is ruled by idols right now. Things like consumerism and racism and consumption and enslavement and all the different isms and things that have been made ultimate things rule and dominate our world. They drag people away like slaves. And they don't care if you're in the church, they'll try to drag you away too. And let's say even if today that we go, I have kept myself clean, I have not chased after idols, then you're exhausted of living in a world like this, aren't you? And let's say maybe you're somewhere on the spectrum in between, which many of us are, where you hear something like this and you go, I gotta repent and come back to Jesus. There's an exhaustion that comes from living in a world so drowned in idols that you're like, Gosh, Lord, do something. And so Jesus' words to the church is this. Be faithful to me. Come back to me if you've been cheating on me. And there will be a day in the future where I will bring to an end all of these idols that rule the nations. And you know what? I'll get a rule with you. And here's the end. The final world that Jesus gives is that he will give the morning star. You're not going get, to get this yet. It's at the end of Revelation. The morning star is a nickname for Jesus that you'll find out in the end of Revelation. So what Jesus is saying to the church is, I will give myself to you. Here's the difference between a Jesus, Jesus and an idol. Idols demand you sacrifice for them, and then they fail on their promises. Here's what Jesus does. He sacrifices himself to give himself to you. No idol ever died for you. No other God in the entire history of the world died for his people. Jesus promises that he is going to give to the one who conquers the morning star. The good news church about this passage of scripture is that in it is a vision that one day idols don't get us, don't get to rule the world anymore. Their time will end and all who love Jesus and come to him and go, I, I don't want these idols anymore. They'll get to be with him in this new creation, ruling with him. And everything that an idol promised you, peace, 
intimacy, safety, security, identity. Jesus will give himself all those things to you. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I prayed this over the first service, prayed over my family here too. I ask that you protect them from any lie from the enemy that would twist or distort this truth as anything other than a call from you, Jesus, to run back to you. Many of us, Lord, today will have heard and will have been convicted of idols that we have within our own lives, and the enemy might try to lie to us and say, you've gone too far, you've already committed the affair, and yet, Jesus, here you are in Scripture saying, come back to me. And so I pray that you'd protect your flock today. You are the one who dies and spilt your blood for your bride, the church. And so I ask that you would speak to all of us today, Lord, that we might come running into your arms. Amen. 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 We are going to respond to Jesus. And we're going to respond by praying. So if you heard something today that you're like, I need to talk to Jesus about this, pray. Grab somebody next to you and pray. That's fine. Or come up and pray and we'll, we'll pray with you on the side. We would love to pray with you. We also are going to respond by giving. It always makes sense. I mean, God has given us literally everything. Why? How could we not give out of our generosity? And so we'll give. And we're also going to respond by singing. And singing is just a beautiful way to remind ourselves, no more to idols, I'm worshiping Jesus today. So wherever you're out on that spectrum, here's your chance today to go, nope, I'm worshiping Jesus today and no one else. And we're going to take communion as we do every week. And if you need an image as you go up to take the wine and take the bread, be reminded of this, that Jesus is the only God who gave his life and died to make sure that the wine would be provided for his wedding feast. And so drink that wine knowing my God gave his blood. What idol could ever give that? And take and eat and drink. And so we're going to respond together. Let's stand together and respond to Jesus who loves us and speaks to his church.